There's a singer-songwriter from Nashville that I enjoy listening to quite a bit. Uh, his name's Andy Gullahorn. And one song that I've listened to over the years, it's a satirical song. It's called, I Haven't Either. And he begins by singing, <clears throat> Have you ever been so selfish that you let your baby cry while you finished up a video game? And he pauses just to awaken empathy and make the audience think, yeah, I, I can see how I might have done that. And then he goes on saying, well, I haven't either, because that's pretty bad. And then he feeds another line, have you ever stretched the truth, telling stories to your friends so they'd be a little bit more amazed? And after another pause, he goes, I haven't either. I would never do that. And you see, what Goodlehorn is trying to do, he explains in the next line of his song. Because there are some people out there who aren't completely sincere. What they show in the daylight is not exactly what's inside. It's their form of protection from being rejected. But you and I can be so glad we're not like that. Have you ever made a promise to yourself a thousand times just to break it over and over again? I haven't either. Only people with problems do that sort of thing. But have you been so full of doubt that you just can't pray to God because you wonder if he even exists? I haven't either. And the chorus goes, who am I kidding? Who am I kidding? I am just like them. I am kidding. Gullahorn is uh, describing something we all know so well, don't we? Trying to present a better version, a more sparkling version of ourselves than what we know is really on the inside. It's a bit like the pastor who goes to another conference, a leadership conference, and at one level, he's so excited, he's so inspired by all the fresh ideas, but on a darker level, he looks around and he feels the weight uh, of competition, that churches uh, like him are, are doing so much more and accomplishing more. And as he leaves the conference, he feels dissatisfied, so he returns to his own church with the big handful of resources, and his ego gets ramped up to try and do bigger and better things. He drives his staff crazy for a few months, and then life returns to normal. The, the notebook that he had written all these grandiose ideas in are now on the shelf, and he returns to normal, but with the vague uneasiness of his own ineffectiveness as a leader, never sure if he's quite measuring up. Well, this week in our church year, we're, we're transitioning from transfiguration and epiphany to Lent, and it's a week of contrasts, it's a week of extremes, you really can't get much further 
than what we read today, this dazzling epiphany of Jesus on the mountaintop. And then we go to the words on Ash Wednesday, for dust you are, to dust you shall return. And the danger is, if you separate out these stories, you miss out on the call on what it means to be authentic uh, as a Christian. It's only when you put them together in intention that, that you see how God's plan was to demonstrate how glory was going to be made visible through humanity, through the pathway to suffering. And this is the message of what we believe. The, the church believes we're closest to affirming the truth about who Jesus is when we're holding intention Jesus as fully God up on the mountaintop, but Jesus also as fully human. The, the theology of the cross and the theology of glory, juxtaposing transfiguration with Lent. When our dwelling in the word team looked at this passage of transfiguration, someone made a comment that in many ways, when you read this passage, it feels like you could just finish the, the book of Matthew, it would be a lovely finish, wouldn't it, to have the transfiguration? Because it's, it's mirroring what happens at the start of Jesus' ministry in, in the baptism scene where the heavens open and you hear the, the voice coming out of the cloud, this is my beloved son. And it's like bookends, the baptism and the transfiguration, but in other ways, this transfiguration is the pivot. It's the moving point that keeps us going in a very distinct direction. It's like this diamond. You can see backwards, but you can also see forwards. Thomas Aquinas, in, in his book Summa Theologica, when he asked himself the question, why do we need the transfiguration? What is this all about? Listen to what he says. Our Lord, after foretelling his passion to his disciples, had exhorted them to, to follow the path of suffering. But in order that anyone should go straight along this road, he must know what's at the end. Just like an archer is not going to shoot the arrow straight, unless he first sees the target. I think that's a very helpful picture, isn't it? Because you see, Jesus had just revealed to his disciples that he was going to suffer and die, and they were discouraged. Really, this, this anointed Messiah, you're, you're going to die? But the transfiguration becomes the target, the archer's target to help the disciples see what's going to be accomplished through suffering, what the end point is. He gives them a glimpse of glory. This is the end design so that they can keep straight on the pathway. So that's what transfiguration helps us to do. It helps us look forward but it also helps us look backwards too. There's a continuity here. Earlier we read about the story of Moses on a different mountain, but he was also surrounded by a cloud to receive the law. 
And then Jesus standing on the mountain reminds us too of that moment when Elijah was on another mountain, the Mount Horeb, when he met God, not through the earthquake, wind, or fire, but through that still, small voice. Moses opened the Red Sea. Elijah opened the heavens because he didn't taste death. And all these little moments in the Old Testament are are whispers of the greater one, the greater Moses, the greater Elijah, the one who is to come. Moses on the one side, he's pulling at the law that Jesus was going to fulfill it and provide liberation. And just as Moses was six days up on the mountain to get this law, now there's mention of six days in Matthew with similar faces shining. And then Elijah on the other side is representing the prophets, calling God's people to be authentic in their faithfulness. And these two men, as they stand beside Jesus on that day of transfiguration, it gets a greater intensity, doesn't it? When you realize that when Moses was up on the first mountain, yes, his face was shining, but he never fully saw God. His face was veiled. And Elijah too, when he was up on the mountain, he could only hide from God's presence. But here on the transfiguration, there's this powerful realization. They're all looking at each other face to face, talking freely with each other. They can finally interact with the divine glory, the the glory that for all their lives they were seeking. It's powerful that the transfiguration is this consummation point. Alison Trite says, it's in the transfiguration, in this moment, we experience the gospel in microcosm. We have this beautiful microcosm of what the gospel leads us to, to glory. And we can travel into our own lens now, knowing that we still have our faces hidden from God. We can't always see him or feel him close, but one day we're going to be transfigured like Moses and Elijah, where the darkness of our own souls will be dissolved and the light of Christ's face will shine upon us, where we'll be enveloped by the same cloud that hovered over Mary at Christ's conception, the same cloud that now surrounds the disciples on the mountain and will eventually draw Jesus up in the ascension. So this transfiguration moment gives us a taste of the divine. But even though there's this continuity between what's gone before and what is about to happen, the transfiguration also marks out how Jesus is distinctive that there are things about this Jesus that's different from Moses and Elijah. Moses, for for all the wonderful leadership qualities that he had and leading the people through the wilderness, his people still had hard hearts and Moses really struggled with that and he got so frustrated as a leader himself, he wasn't able to lead them to the promised land. 
And Elijah too, not long after he was up on the mountain, he got so frustrated with his enemies, the messengers from the king of Samaria, he rained fire down from heaven to consume his enemies. And so it's maybe no surprise after the transfiguration when the disciples get a little bit grumpy and feel life is not going their way. They say to Jesus, can we not just rain fire down from heaven too? We're fed up with the Samaritans and how they don't welcome us. We want vengeance. But Jesus says, no, this is not my way. Vengeance is not my way. Even though there were probably many church leaders he wanted to have a word with, he didn't give vengeance. And this is what makes Jesus distinctive. He embodied grace, a fullness of grace that intonated they were moving into this new kingdom era, a kingdom whose heartbeat was grace, a fullness of grace that had the power to melt any heart of stone. That's what made him different. Because Jesus was showing this pathway from suffering to glory, from the cross to the ascension, from judgment to liberation. And it's in that place of paradox and tension, the cross and glory become one, where the the living and the dead are one in Christ, where the age to come is already here, where transfiguration is the perfect segue to Lent. It's in this place where Jesus has the final word. And it's in this place, in this smooth transition, that discloses where we don't feel smooth. It discloses our awkwardness about Jesus, our uncomfortableness about uh, Jesus' suffering. It discloses our awkward places between our true and our false self, because Whenever you encounter grace, you're forced to confront who you really are, what is true and what is false. It's our false self that wants to keep Jesus on the mountain so that we can easily contain him in a shelter, so that we're still in control. But that's the place where you lose the vision When Peter wanted to build these temporary shelters for Moses and Elijah and Jesus, he might have been offering hospitality. But what was going on here was that he'd lost sight of the vision and mission of Jesus. That Jesus was on a distinct mission. He wasn't equal to to Moses and Elijah The way Peter was building these shelters seemed to suggest they were all equal. And he forgot that the the pathway Jesus was on was leading through the cross to glory. The vision of redemption was lost. Parker Palmer says that our souls can easily lose this kind of vision. Our souls are like wild animals. They're tough, they're resilient, they're scary. But they're also very shy and like to hide in places. 
And when we're faced with many tensions in the world, we know spiritually what we want to be like. And yet our world demands of us something so different. The tension of trying to love deeply and richly in a world that wants quick answers. The, the tension of wanting nice beauty and order in a world that's just so messy. And, and sometimes these tensions can make us creative and make us look for beautiful solutions, but most of the time, these tensions make us reduce our vision until it's something we can control, like building a shelter. Peter Senge in the fifth discipline says, how emotional tension is often relieved by adjusting one pole of the creative tension that is under our control at all times, that one pole called vision. We escape this tension by reducing our goals closer to our current reality. And the only price we pay is abandoning what we truly need, our vision. Peter had lost the vision of a glory made known through the cross. He was bringing his own goal of keeping Jesus close to his own current reality by building a shelter. But this isn't grace. This is works. I wonder, have you lost vision? You're working hard, but you've lost vision of where you're going. You've been working hard to shelter all the tensions, all the paradoxes in your life. Desperately wanting authentic faith, and yet family life is complex, it's overwhelming. Desperately wanting to integrate faith in your work. And yet the drive to fulfill certain markers for promotion always seemed to reduce your passion for God. We need to go back to the transfiguration so that it discloses for us what, what mantles we're trying to put on our shoulders that build around our false selves to protect our souls, that atrophy our vision of Jesus. That's why we need the transfiguration. And for some of us, that might simply look like adjusting some spiritual disciplines. It might look like weekly Sabbath keeping, learning to stop completely so that we're letting go of our large view of what we're trying to hold together on the mountaintop and come to the realization God is bigger his glory is bigger. He's the one sheltering us. We don't need to shelter him. For others, it might mean learning to take off some mantles completely in order to realize, are we living from our true selves or our false selves? Each time I, I went on maternity leave, I would go through this process. You take off the mantle of ministry, you take a break, and then after some time, you realize it's quite nice not to have to work and not have to be bothered by people. And then you have to ask yourself the question, do I want to go back in again? And you go through that process. Am I returning for the right reasons? 
and you're clarifying in those places what is your true self and what is your false self. For some of you, sabbaticals will take you through that process. For some of you, retirement will take you through that process where you shed a mantle and you try to identify this vision. What is God calling you to be? And how to live from that true self. Or maybe for, for some of you, you've got to that place and it hasn't been by your choice. Maybe illness has forced you to a mountaintop, a quiet mountaintop, not of your choosing. And you're questioning, who am I in all of this when I can't work? And the reality is none of these questions can be answered by building false shelters. They can only be rediscovered when we follow Jesus and we let him lead us back to the ordinary life where we live in those tensions. You know those places, those paradoxes. You're trying to write an important paper, but your children are fighting in the background. You're on your way to church to worship, but you're having an argument with one of your loved ones. Or you've come to church today discouraged because another Christian leader has fallen from grace. These are the paradoxes we have to embrace and live in, not build our shelters, but embrace them. And you return to these places with the same words God spoke over his son. This is my child whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. This is the identity you pick up and journey with through Lent. And we go on our journey with the challenge that God gives us on the Mount of Transfiguration. Listen, God says, listen to Jesus. Listen to his words. Let his words guide you through Lent, not the words of your false self. If we start with Lent without having gone through the transfiguration, it easily becomes this place where we focus on our shelters, where we focus on what we're building up and what we're taking down. And it becomes an exercise in works, trying to prove yourself. But where is your vision in that? Have you lost your vision at the expense of building shelters, keeping your options open? But if we start with the transfiguration, it becomes this exercise in grace. It becomes this call to fix your eyes on Jesus as you strip things away to, to grow in our desire for Jesus and letting his glory shine through who we are. That's why transfiguration and Lent go together. I started this sermon talking about Andy Gullahorn and his song, I Haven't Either, that highlights the masks that we were, the true self, the false self. Another singer-songwriter I was listening to this week, um, he talks about the true self and living from that place in a very different context. 
this week, one of our church members was telling me about the gospel singer Kazito Mahigo from her home country in Rwanda. So poignant because this week he died in custody in Rwanda. And for years, Mahigo wrote these wonderful songs. He became known as the artist, the songwriter of peace and reconciliation. But in April 2014, as part of the commemoration of the genocide, Mahigo, even though he was a Tutsi, he was part of the group who were the victims, he wrote a song that challenged the official narrative of the genocide against the Tutsis. In his song, he said that in war, God called many home, not just from one tribe, but from the other as well. His lyrics say, though the genocide orphaned me, let it not make me lose empathy for others because their lives too were brutally taken but not qualified as genocide. These brothers and sisters are human beings. My dignity and love are not rooted in carnal life nor in material possessions but in humanity. So let the words, I am Rwandan, be preceded by, I am human. And that song with those lyrics challenging the narrative of who was right, who was wrong, it was enough to put him in prison for five years. He was given a presidential pardon in 2018, but he was imprisoned earlier this year, 2020, and that's where he died. But Mahigo was living from his true self, that in Christ we're all one, a Christ who crossed boundaries, which showed a greater reality to the true self, rather than constructing narratives for our countries, for our national identities. So beginning this Wednesday, we'll change, won't we? We'll embark on a journey where we'll be asked to identify where the shadows are in this world. But you can only do that when you know the light, Christ's light, the transfiguring light that will dispense the shadows. So listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Let him develop that clear vision for your life. The clear vision of God's glory being reflected out from who your true self is. For as it says in Corinthians, the Lord is here and wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we're being transfigured into his likeness with ever increasing glory. So as God enters our lives, we become like him. As we enter land, listen to him and he will set you free. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.